0: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. As always, my name is Heath Brown, and I have the real pleasure today to talk to Veronica Herrera, who is the author of Water and Politics, Clientelism and Reform in Urban Politics. The book is published by University of Michigan Press. Veronica, thanks for joining us. How are you doing?
1: Great. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, such a pleasure to have you on and to talk about the book. Uh, why don't you start us off by telling us just a little bit about yourself?
1: Okay. Well I am assistant professor at the University of Connecticut in the political Science department, and I study comparative politics of developing countries uh, broadly but specifically really focusing on Latin america and I study cities and environment especially
0: wonderful it's it's um the book is is you know comes at the world in such different ways um, there's some uh, kind of concepts that I thought it would be good to start out with just to see how you define them and, and how they're important for the book. So you study clientelism yes. and particularistic service provision. Now, I think the first term is somewhat widely used, but maybe not the second. Uh, would you define these two terms for us and the way you use them in the book?
1: Yes, of course. So I, in the book, I talk about a broad set of practices that I call particularistic service provision um, that are, is sort of non-programmatic service provision. So I would say that they encompass a series of practices that I define as being clientelism, patronage, and corruption, which are often, you know, they're related to each other, but they're conceptually different. Ideas, They often go together. (laughs) Um, And together, they uh, provide a type of service provision in terms of public services that are often very deficient um, and highly problematic. And unfortunately, particularistic service provision um, characterizes much of the types of services that many citizens in developing countries receive. Um, But I can talk specifically about what clientelism, patronage, and corruption are and how they're different. So clientelism, um, in political science, it's been uh, frequently defined as the exchange of material goods or benefits for electoral support. So the exchange of, of things like food, cash, clothing, and in my case, public services, uh, for electoral support. In political science, Clientelism is often thought about as synonymous with vote buying, but I want to stress that uh, clientelism is not only vote buying. There's other ways that citizens can provide politicians with political support other than the vote. So that's clientelism, whereas patronage is the um, provision of public sector jobs to your supporters. And so we find that often in particular sick service provision. So you have political appointments. You have, you know, your buddy that used to run the chicken and waffle restaurant all of a sudden is a public utility director Mm -hmm. uh, who has no experience and maybe has, you know, an elementary school education, something like that. That uh, unfortunately happens too often. And then corruption, uh, both small bribes and larger uh Sort of the petty corruption, the small bribes, which happens often, and then the 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 larger types of corruption practices, like kickbacks from government contracts and things like that. So all of that big mess uh, is um, sort of what you see in particularistic service provision um in in many of these countries
0: and your your book is focused on three states in Mexico, and in fact, i made a mistake with your subtitle. Your subtitle is Clientelism and Urban Reform in Urban Mexico. I think I may have said urban politics. Nevertheless, you you focus on these three different states. Would you tell us about these three states and why you chose them and what you chose within those states to study? Yes.
1: So the book is really um, a a subnational comparative analysis of eight cities within three different states. Um, And so uh, the, the states are Guanajuato State, uh, Mexico State, which is the state that it surrounds Mexico City, um, and, um, the state of Veracruz. And so what I did is I selected, um, cities that had, uh, excuse me, I, I selected eight cities within these three states that had a different, um, that had different the states have the Guanajuato state is more industrialized, um, has more middle class, stronger political opposition historically because the Mexico was ruled by one political party for uh over seventy years a pre. Um and so, you know, Guanajuato State has more political competition, um, and the PAN, the center-right party, has been stronger. In Mexico State, you have real variation in the type of political party that um, you see coming to power um, in different cities. You have a real mix of some cities with uh, lots of industrialization, some cities with weak industrialization. Um, and so you have kind of variation, economic, political, social structures. And then in Veracruz, you have mostly the pre-. Uh, always and forever, and still today, uh, you have a lot of clientelism uh, that never really went away, and you don't have a lot of political competition, and you have less industrialization. So the the cities in the the three states were intended to be representative of sort of the broader panorama of political, economic, and social uh, structures throughout the country, such that when I have the the comparative analysis, we really focus on the factors that lead to reform um, in the cases where they exist, um, and that's sort of controlling for some of the variation and some of the other social, economic, and political uh, conditions that I argued, you know, aren't what is leading reform.
0: Now, there's also this temporal dimension to the research. Uh, You focused on uh, post-democratization. That's right. I wonder when is this period for the places in Mexico that you study places sort of historically the, the time period that you study
1: okay so uh, so Mexico is ruled by one political party the pre uh, from until in terms of the presidential national uh, election that was 2000 when you have a transfer of power to um, the center-right party the pun but And and a lot of studies of Mexico focus on that being the democratization period. But actually, in Mexico, you had subnational democratization first. Uh, So in the 80s and 90s, you have the pre-losing in in cities and in states. Um, And so you start to get this introduction of electoral competition in cities and states before the national uh, level transition to competitive elections. So that is why this book um you know is about clientelism and reform, but it's also about uh the vast the, the variation in uh outcomes that you see in terms of uh government governance capacity um during this very tenuous period of, of, of democratization. So all of the cities that I study in all eight cities, they are uh I'm studying them around the 90s, 1990s. Uh, they, each city starts, the, the analysis for each city starts when when the first uh, non-pre-mayor comes to power.
0: Now, why water? Uh, on the one hand, water and, and these kinds of um, public services uh, matter a lot everywhere. Um, but does the water and the politics of water provision um, take on any special meaning for Mexico?
1: well, yes, uh, I think that um it's clear that mexico um you know it, not, Mexico has a different uh, topography and a sort of availability of water resources. It varies throughout the country, but much of it is uh, m- m- much of the urban concentrations um, and industrial concentrations actually and problematically are in drought dr- drought prone areas so water is really um, uh, an, a critical issue in Mexico that takes on a particular uh, political importance I have a, a a statistic in the book that 79% of mayors in one study noted water services as the most important municipal issue in the country. Um, but actually you know you, you see that in many many countries where water is incredibly important um, either because it's a drought prone area um, that is having different water stress or simply because uh, water services are, are so problematic. Um, in fact in Mexico, you don't necessarily have better service where you have more water availability.
0: No, no. So if if we put these pieces together, uh, the study is about these these urban areas, these cities in Mexico, uh, about the provision of water uh, through the lens of, of clientelism and, and so forth. And you you assemble these these city comparisons. To draw inferences about what it's associated with, effective or ineffective pu- public water provision. Now, um, if you were to generalize about the cases of failure, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what these cases share in common. What's what are the the common characteristics in in the cities that you study where the provision of water is prone to the some of the negative consequences of clientelism?
1: Right. So. Um So I would say that in all eight cities, you have, initially, you have uh, deeply entrenched clientelistic practices for all sorts of things, including water services. Um, And of course, in the four reform cities, you have changes that occur, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But in the four cities where you don't have changes and the status quo remains, right? You you have continuing uh, deeply entrenched clientelistic uh, exchange of water for the vote and water for political support and sort of political manipulations of water service. Um, There are certainly characteristics that these four cities share. Um, And so, and these cities are, um, yeah, they're distributed throughout a couple of different states. And what they share is they share, uh, number one, they don't have uh, a a strong consolidated middle-class presence. Uh, they have more low-income voters, and this is something that, you know, really is, um, synchronistic with, um, the clientelism literature that finds that most clientelist, clientelist exchanges occur with, uh, poor voters, um, so you have that, that socioeconomic factor um, and you also have um, what one of the things the study does is, is does the, the book analyzes the industrialization patterns of each city. And I find that in the cities that don't reform, you have either limited industrialization or the industrialization that occurs is not water intensive. Um, so that's another factor, um, that characterizes some of the, the four non-reform cities, the cities where clientelism continues to be deeply entrenched. And so what I find in these four cities, um, where, where clientelism continues to be entrenched and you don't have reform is I find that in all four cases you do, you do have actually the introduction of a new, a new political party that comes to power, um, because that's precisely, you know, what I'm examining. Um, but, instead of any type of reform efforts, you have a continuation of the clientelistic practices and, but the new political parties kind of do it in a different way. So they find ways to, um, to benefit uh, in terms of politi- benefit politically from manipulating public services provision. They come to power and they see this as this wonderful resource, you know, that they can uh, extract rents, from, that they can uh, use to reward allies and punish enemies. Um, And so you have, you know, a continuation of the practice. Um, But actually, what's different in these four cities from the historical time period, you know, 30 or 40 years earlier, is that you no longer have, um, because these new cities are from different political parties, you don't have that relationship with the same political party at the center, because now you have electoral competition everywhere. So it's sort of, Every man on for, for himself, unfortunately. So you have actually rapidly decaying services because you don't have the financial, um, injection of federal funds and you don't have some political hegemon controlling the rate and extent of clientelistic particularistic service provision in these cities. So it's sort of a free-for-all. And in some of the cities, I I document sort of the the human impact of that and also the environmental impacts that are quite grave in in some of the cities where this is um, done in a a completely unchecked way.
0: And what about the successes? Uh, What do we associate with the patterns of success? And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the role of businesses and business associations, which play in some ways a surprising role in, in some of these cities, at least surprising to me.
1: Right. So in the four cities where you'd see reform occur, um, I, I, I found a series of, of factors that that's really the argument of the book. So um, you have um, the presence of middle class communities in, in concentrated fashion, um, some of which have Quite um, uh, a role of activism and uh, participatory activism in 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 general in different in different areas, but then you know it manifests itself also in in the water sector. Um, and you have water-intensive industries, so that's something that I do in the book is that I I map this out using um using economic census data. And um, I find that in the four reform cities, you have industries that are that need large amounts of water for their for their processing. Uh, most of them are manufacturing industries. And I go through and I uh, examine which manufacturing sectors need how much water. And I have water permit data that I uh, reconstruct from uh From from government sources, and I see that in those communities, you have that sort of structural factor of the actual uh, water-intensive industry presence, Um, but also you have a sort of almost like an agency factor of these business associations and these business leaders that take on um, a real sense of in some cases activism or leadership and in another case just sort of tacit cooperation um but in all cases the presence of these industries and their relationship with the new political party that comes to power helps to create a sort of political coalition for reform. And so you see that in terms of business being part of the coalition, middle class being part of the coalition and these new political parties that are catering. They're the center right party and they're catering to these groups. You know, they're not they're no longer they are themselves, the first opposition party in these cities, and they need to build an electoral constituency and uh, continue to be reelected, continue to be the political party to be reelected. And so they use water reforms and other other sectors, too, but specifically water reforms in the book to help build a brand, a good government brand um, and um, sort of Make make infrastructure sexy is is one way to think about it. There's, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of uh, you know newspaper articles in, the, in in the U.S. about infrastructure crumbling, which it is, um, and how infrastructure is not sexy. You know, politicians uh, don't you you can't um, infrastructure construction is sexy, but maintaining and repairing existing infrastructure is not particularly politically appealing. You know, someone else built that. You can't cut a ribbon on a repair, right? Um, but these, uh, these political coalitions that involve business mayors and, uh, new political parties, um, begin to form a, 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 a governing uh, coalition that promotes these types of reforms gets political credit for it. You see all these mayors springboarding up to higher levels of government. You see them, you, you see them on television, uh, newspaper ads, all of this branding that I collect. I have, um, a, a large collection of these diverse data points, um, to show how they benefit politically from it to help build a constituency uh, that helps them and their party, uh, consolidate power. And importantly, Reduce the power of the opposition.
0: Now, yeah, I, I just wanted to follow up on that and 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 look to some of the sort of what to make of these findings. And you you draw from your study a a paradoxical conclusion or one of the conclusions, which is that more public participation does not necessarily result in better provision of public services. Uh, this is something that that you mentioned at the start of the book and then again at the end. I wonder if you would explain this this paradox and if I got this right, because it it in many ways runs counter to what we typically associate with democracy and public participation in in government. So tell us a little bit about one of that 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 takeaway. Is is that the right takeaway?
1: Okay, yes, that's a great question. So one of the things that I find in the book and and wanted to sort of stress is that the the political coalitions that are behind the extensive reform that we see in the water uh, sector in the four cities that 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 are characterized as, as high reform cities, um, they really go through a process of policy installation. And that's one of the the, the way in which they are able to effectively um, have this dramatic change in service provision. and. The policy insulation process, which I talk about in the book, um, is a process that reduces the participation of the actors in society that the political coalition associated with clientelistic um, practices. And so these. Reform coalitions were worried that if we have these really broad participatory um, processes where we allow everyone and anyone to come and be on the water, the citizen advisory board, there's citizen water boards that oversee the different utilities. If we open that process up to everybody, then we're going to have the people who are wanting to maintain the status quo and we're going to have opposition party leaders that are going to be coming in to these spaces um, or their or their cronies. And so we need to this is a really contentious thing that we're doing. We're eliminating clientelistic relationships. We are angering, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people. There were mass mobilization in all the cities there were mass mobilization. Um, you know, there were riots. There were rallies. The police were involved. It was really very contentious because it wasn't just about water. It was about the first pre uh, party that comes to power the first opposition party that's coming to power, and you have such such drama surrounding that. Um, and you have the pre-leaders didn't want to leave office. They were burning papers. They were burning municipal papers. Like when they knew that the opposition party was coming, you know, and was inaugurated and it was their day to turn everything over. They were just bonfires out in, in the front of city hall. They were hiding the keys to, you know, all of the, the, the doors of how the building worked. They were hiding the car keys. I mean, it was really, it was very interesting to see that. Um, and so, in this very contentious environment, they wanted to reduce the uh, role and the participation of the opposition and those who were going to um, sort of promote or pr- uh, protect. Uh, these clientelistic relationships. And so that's what they did. They limited the, uh, participation to groups that were already supportive of these, of these, uh, reforms. And so, um, I have four reform cases and two of the reform cases particip- participation was, um, controlled for, um, for those groups, um, as well as for, um, some of the elite groups as well was a little bit more of a narrow, uh, I call it narrow incorporation. And then for the other two high reform cases, we have what I call broader incorporation where you have elites and business leaders uh, allowed to participate in the process and they are involved in leading the process, but you still have in all four reform cases, the limit limit limiting of these uh, lower income users. So it's, it's sort of a controversial finding in that way. Certainly, and compared to politics, um, specifically, you know, participatory institutions and participatory processes are such a, an important part of uh, what we see when we study democratization and study uh, democracy building. But I found uh, paradoxically that in some cases, um, when you have a highly clientelistic um, and contentious uh, pr- process uh, and you have these government reforms where you're going to have winners and losers, you um, that, that, that the, ref, the successful reform cases did limit and control the, the type of participation, who got to participate. Um, so that is one of the findings.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting finding. It's a really interesting book. The title, again, is Water and Politics, Clientelism and Reform in Urban Mexico, The book is published by University of Michigan Press. The author, who you've been hearing from, is Veronica Herrera. Veronica, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you so much, Heath.